Ukraine summit held in Kyiv. Was it a success? President Zelensky's second visit abroad after the beginning of the big war, this time to London and Paris and later to Brussels. What does this visit mean? How did Ukrainian people and government express their solidarity with Turkish and Syrian people after a horrible earthquake? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. This is our special series Around Ukraine, in which we analyze the international context of the current Russian invasion of Ukraine to understand how it can influence Ukraine's resistance and resilience. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of UkraineWorld.org. My guest is Ukraine World analyst Maxim Panchenko. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine, brought to you by Internews Ukraine. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our humanitarian trips to the frontline areas at paypal ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Hello, Maxim. So we're continuing our, our series around Ukraine. So let's discuss the major topics which are related to the international context of the Ukraine resistance against Russian invasion this week. What are the key Well, what are the key topics, actually? Hello, Volodymyr. Uh, yes, indeed, the, the week has been quite encumbered with uh, with the events around Ukraine, and not just around Ukraine, but the ones that influence Ukraine. So the major point is, of course, the EU-Ukraine summit, and not the about. It was not about the integration of Ukraine per se, but also about so many other things, which we'll speak about. Uh, this, of course, is the earthquake uh, in Turkey, uh, and uh, how Ukraine. Uh, lended its helping hand to to the to the nation. Uh, of course, there is this uh, pending tour of President Zelensky uh, around several European countries. There is the spy scandal around the Chinese balloon over the U.S., which does not have direct bearing on Ukraine, but still influences the context. And of course, there is this uh, discussion around the Olympics that are that are going to be held in uh, in Paris and the participation, potential participation of Russia and Belarus therein. Right, so let's start with the uh, with the EU-Ukraine summit and can you, you followed it very closely, uh, so can you maybe describe how it looked like it was held in, uh, in Kyiv and uh, the key EU officials, the key EU leaders came to Kyiv including uh, the, uh, the the president of the European Council, uh, Charles Michel, including the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, how it looked like. Yeah, so of course, the first thing that we need to put to, to uh, pay attention to is the scale of the events, because apart from the summit itself, that was held on the 3rd of February, uh, a day before, actually, on, on February 2nd, there was this uh, so-called intergovernmental meeting, the joint session of Ukraine's government and uh, uh, of the European Commission. And uh, I think as many as 16 out of 27 European commissioners came here to Ukraine. So this, uh, one of the pillars of this event, uh, of this uh, two-day event, was the scale of it and the message it sent about how much the EU stands with Ukraine. So uh, much of the negotiations have been technical. Uh, it's about, uh, they, they were about the uh, Ukraine's incremental accession to the uh, trade zone, to the European trade zone, uh, all the way to uh, to the common market at the, at the very end of the day. And so it was technical, but it was very important because that's the bare bone of what the EU is, the common market, the uh, 
non-existence of trade barriers between uh, the, the states and and their partners. So that's uh, that was very important. And of course, the summit itself held on uh, on the uh, 3rd of February, apart from all the expected statements and the expected emotion, the expected uh, ardent nature of those statements. Uh, one thing that is, uh, I mean, when it comes, comes to the support of Ukraine, financial, military, and the support of further Ukraine's integration, and the words that Ukraine is going to be the EU member state, etc., etc. The things that are important is also how much attention was uh, paid not just to the European, to the EU integration, because that's what these summits had previously been about, but also about the support of Ukraine. Uh, for material I prepared, I even analyzed the final statement, and out of around 30 points of the final statement, only seven have to do with the EU integration, and uh, more than 20 have to do with the support of Ukraine, the military support, the need of victory over Russia, how the EU is going to contribute, the anti-Russian sanctions, international justice for Ukraine, etc., etc. So this uh, pro proportion of what has been paid attention during this final statement is very telling about how much more than just a candidate country Ukraine is for the European Union. Because on the one hand, given the war circumstances, given the domestic issues, the process of European integration may be a bit slower than Ukraine would like it to be. And uh, Ukraine is not going to be in the European Union in a couple of years, and as many Ukrainian officials want it to be. But that doesn't mean that there is uh, that this is the entire picture. There is the bigger picture, and uh, the final statement tells us that. So th there is that. And of course, we are very happy to have that kind of support from the European Union. That's very interesting because it shows maybe that this war and Ukrainian resistance also transforms the EU itself because in, you know, a couple of years ago we would have just a discussion about, uh, about association agreement, maybe about Copenhagen criteria, but now the discussion is of course absolutely different. It's It's a discussion about the existential issues about the war, about peace, about resistance. And the EU itself, we know this kind of mythology of the EU that it was founded uh, after after the World War II and it guaranteed peace. And uh, it, it has seen itself as a kind of an organism which can only live in peace, which doesn't, doesn't even think about war, about enemies, about something things like that, more tragic things, more existential things. But it seems that the EU itself is changing right now. But let me ask you about the assessment of the Ukrainian progress made by, by the European Union, by the, by the European Commission. There are different spheres, different fields. In some fields, Ukraine is doing progress. In some other fields, it is not doing that much progress. Can you uh, develop on this. Yes, so of course the 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 bare bones of this issue is uh, the seven recommendations that Ukraine received from the European Union in summer at the time of uh, at the time when it also received the candidate status and they are kind of a precursor for the necessary for the negotiations about membership to to be launched. And uh, yes, indeed everybody expected that there would be an assessment uh, during the summit last week of how Ukraine coped with these recommendations 
how much they have been they had been implemented. And of course, the progress is mixed, both because of the wartime circumstances, as I said, and because of uh, domestic issues like the complexity of the fight against corruption, which is one of the major topics that the EU has always been paying attention to, uh, etc. So, uh, yes, the progress had, has been mixed. The major concern of the European Union at this point is that uh, the, is the progress that Ukraine has failed to achieve and needs to achieve further when it comes to the to the uh, constitutional court and the reforms around the constitutional court, and also uh, there are issues about the anti-oligarch uh, law and about anti-corruption in general. So those are the major two points out of this of the seven recommendations that uh, the EU would especially like uh, for Ukraine to do more. However, it should be understood that. Uh, the European Union understands uh, the circumstances Ukraine is in, I mean, the wartime circumstances, and it can be seen from the, uh, well, from the final statement as a formal outcome of the, uh, of the summit, but also from the talks during the summit, it can be seen that uh, the EU did not pressure Ukraine too much. Ukraine said about its, uh, the EU said and hinted at what needs to be done, but there was no pin, uh, finger pointing, there was no uh, aggression, so to say, even, you know, in diplomatic uh, encounterment. So, the, uh, because, uh, like, there are no as formal assessments in the final statement that you just says that uh, it takes notice of the progress Ukraine makes and there will be some only formal assessment later in the year. Uh, I think it's going to be in spring. So it seems like everybody tried to avoid the sharp edges here, understanding what situation Ukraine is in. So I think that's very telling too. That's very understandable on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think that uh, uh, you should understand as well that it has a huge leverage on Ukraine and uh, in terms of primarily the accession accession procedure. And I think you would agree with me that one of the problems of the past years, pre-war past years, I mean, before this big war, like in the years... 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, was that Ukraine didn't have really a, an external incentive for reforms. Of course, it was it had internal incentives for reforms. There is a pressure from the inside of Ukraine. People want uh, modernization of the country and making country much more, uh, much more modern looking, much uh, you know, much more transparent. But at the same time, there, there was this external incentive um, at the times a few years ago, which was visa liberalization, visa, visa free regime. And when it was achieved, uh, it seemed that this external, uh, external uh, incentive is no longer there. And that was a problem. And now it appeared. It appeared with the candidate status. It appeared with the way to the EU membership. And uh, we, we see that the uh, the EU is taking it really seriously. It's not like a game. It's not like something that is said and not to be done. And I think this is good because if we look at the uh, latest corruption issues in Ukraine, the there were investigations about corruption in um, defense ministry in some other spheres, and we see how the government tries to react. The Zelensky administration tries to react by sacking some of the people, for example. 
one of the key person uh, person in the uh, in the president's presidential office Kirill Tymoshenko which 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 resigned um amid the corruption amid the scandal that he started owning a luxury cars cars and uh, maybe this reaction is uh, is is telling uh, not only about the in- incentive intention of reforms we understand that around zelensky there are many dubious people there are many people who are hiding behind him, behind his popularity, and there are many people who are hiding behind the war. So they're they're trying to do uh, some dirty things be behind behind the war, and uh, it is important that the EU maybe in the coming uh, weeks months becomes more critical and more uh, more attentive to what is going on. Just to understand that, of course, uh, I mean, the reforms, anti-corruption reforms, judicial reform should go on even during the war and precisely during the war because of the war, because the war is also for making Ukraine much more uh, transparent, much more uh, just. But at the same time, I think that uh, the issue of corruption is uh, much overestimated and that Ukraine would not have maintain this resistance during all these times if it were as corrupt as some people outside Ukraine are trying to present it. So Ukraine shows during the war that it has sound institutions, that it has good public administration, that it has very good public institutions when it comes to energy sector, when it comes to logistics, when it comes to the military, to the defense. And uh, of course, there are corruption issues, but they are everywhere. They are in EU countries as well. Okay, let's uh, let's maybe, unless you wanted to add something on the EU track. I just wanted, the only thing I would like to add is that uh, it's not only about the uh, Ukraine's candidacy to the European Union that is an incentive for Ukraine, but it also is the issue of financial support on the part of the European Union. Uh, the EU has adopted this uh, package uh, for uh, the entire 2023, uh, meaning to allocate as much as uh, 18 billion dollar, 18 billion euros to Ukraine during the year, and only three of them, I think, three billion euros, have been provided unconditionally, and that's the uh, major shift uh, compared to 2022 uh, during the entire year, of which Ukraine received financial support from the EU unconditionally, and now uh, there is this quid pro quo, so to say, even though it is not pre- quid pro quo because, like at the end of the day, Ukraine is the primary beneficiary of the reforms. Uh, but uh, what I'm getting here at is that uh, it's not only about candidacy, but also about financial survival. So yes, that was just to to reinforce what you just said. That's all the more important against the backdrop of this financial. Yeah, this is extremely important because we understand that half of the Ukrainian budget, unfortunately, is now covered by external, external loans, external aid, external grants. And this is understandable because Russia is trying to destroy the Ukrainian economy. Now, millions of people have left. Uh, thousands of enterprises ha- have been closed. Uh, um, we've just went to Kramatorsk, very close to the front line, 40 kilometers or 30 kilometers from the front line, and constantly shelled by the Russian missiles. And in Kramatorsk, there is, uh, well, the, the enterprise which ensured the functioning of the city was the new Kramatorsk machine building plant. Uh, 
and it is not it is not uh, operational so if you go to kromatorsk right now you see that maybe one third of the city is covered by this plant by this huge plant there are other plants as well and uh, maybe one third or one quarter of the population in this or that respect were engaged into the work of the plant now it's not functional and uh, people do not have work and this is just one of the examples and there are thousands of more so economy is suffering not in places where facilities are destroyed but it is suffering just in places when facilities where facilities can be destroyed we should understand this war economy and of course for eu support is is very very important here not only eu but of other as well donors let's let's move on and let's discuss the president zelensky visit to the european countries he went to london he 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 met the king he met the prime minister he gave a speech in the in the british parliament then he went to paris and um, he met president macron and uh, chancellor scholz so it's it's a kind of a a uh, very quick and very efficient uh, visit, very bright visit. It's the second external visit of President Zelensky, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, after the 24th of February, the first one was to United States and to Poland. Uh, can you describe, can you explain why it is important? Because uh, I, I've, um, I forgot to tell that the next uh, destination is Brussels and participation in the EU summit. So not only EU-Ukraine summit, but the EU summit, as if Ukraine were already a member. So can you develop about this visit? Yes, so the primary questions about it uh, is why there and why now? So why there is uh, is because the European Union and European member states have been supporting Ukraine, uh, have, have been the primary supporters of Ukraine. Many may be, uh, well, taken aback even uh, to learn this, but uh, the European Union has supported Ukraine even for a bigger amount of uh, financial support than uh, the US have. So it's not, it, of course, it is not uh, a good way of presenting this as a competition. But what I mean is that Ukraine appreciates, and, you, and Ukraine, this is the where diplomacy comes in. Ukraine's uh, Ukraine uh, needs to show its appreciation and to further develop those negotiate those uh, relationships uh, with regard to support. So this is why he went to. He's going to the EU summit uh, to Brussels. As far as I understand, it's happening. Right now, when we record this uh, podcast, uh, he has gone has gone there straight from France. So, and yes, uh, as you said, the uh, he visited the United Kingdom and uh, France already. So, because these are the primary, these are the leaders, the political and economic leaders of uh, of the European Union when it comes to France, and the UK is of course beyond the EU, but still, it has been. Uh, one of the most vociferous supporters of Ukraine. So it is logical that Ukraine tries to accentuate that. Uh, and also these countries, they have the equipment that Ukraine uh, needs because one of the primary messages that uh, Zelensky shared yesterday during his uh, negotiations in the UK uh, was uh, a plea to uh, for the United Kingdom to um, provide planes to Ukraine, uh, fighter jets. I mean, uh, because that's that is one of the points of support that still have not been covered uh, for the battlefield specifically. I mean, so yes, uh, that is very important. And uh, why now? I think because 
the developments, the diplomatic developments during the last uh, couple of weeks, and especially against the backdrop of this imminent, repeated uh, invasion that, well, maybe uh, offense, so to say, that Russia is uh, rumored to uh, to undertake in the coming days. Uh, it is very important uh, to keep pushing for the strategic view rather than ad hoc support of Ukraine. Because if you look back and compare uh, the support of Ukraine in 2022 uh, with what is happening now, in 2022, the support was huge, but it was more fragmented. It was more on bilateral base and it was more for specific episodes uh, in the on the battlefield. And uh, it helped Ukraine to uh, to lead a very dignified uh, of a defense and to take some counteroffensives. But what is happening now, in my view, is that the West has uh, oh, has believed finally in the need and the merit of supporting Ukraine until the victory. Because if you look at the statements of Western countries and Western leaders, they have become more um, t- more straightforward. They have become more uh, pro- pro-Ukrainian. I mean, they always have been pro-Ukrainian, but they are now uh, pushing more for Ukraine's for Ukraine's victory, not for some kind of negotiations, maybe not for, there are no, no, no wordings uh, like not to let Ukraine lose, but now we're talking about Ukraine's victory. So I think uh, after maybe sitting on the fence for a couple of uh, months, the West has finally been made sure that yes, we're going to be with Ukraine uh, until the end because it's worth it. And what President Zelensky is doing now is trying to reinforce that with his personal presence at the West and with negotiating more important things and more high-level things that Ukraine needs now. Right. I would probably disagree a little bit with you that the the West uh, was sitting on a fence. Uh, I think the support was uh, very quick uh, from the first days of invasion, especially after the first several days when it was clear that Ukraine is going to defend itself. But of course, the question is, the big question is, to which extent the support will will be. And we see, as, as we discussed in our previous episode of this series around Ukraine, we see the process of crossing these imaginary red lines. We have seen how these red lines, so-called red lines, were crossed with the decision to supply tanks. And now we are going farther. The minister Kuleba, foreign minister, uh, uh, very clearly said that, okay, we agreed about tanks, the next goals are fighter jets and long-range missiles. And this is something that was discussed with uh, from by President Zelensky with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak uh, in, in London, that there are already messages that uh, fighter jets can be supplied, and there are already messages that maybe long-range missiles also are, are possible. And we understand that uh, both of them, both fighter jets and long-range missiles, is something that, of course, is needed for Ukrainian offensive and not defense, and something that is also needed for Ukraine attacking the, the targets in the in the Russia itself. And this is something that Ukraine has been doing already uh, without without um, acknowledging it. Well, this is our hypothesis, of course, why why there are so many explosions in, in, uh, in Russian military bases uh, inside Russia. 
and uh, the targets in Crimea, in, in occupied Crimea. But uh, well, it is if 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 UK and other partners are really seriously talking about launch long range missiles, this of course is can also be kind of a crossing the important uh, red line, crossing the important imaginary red line. Uh, yeah, so uh, he also went uh, to Paris to meet uh, Macron and uh, and Scholz. And you know, in, in in the previous episode, we were expressing how Ukraine is about critical and skeptical about Germany. But after I talked to some people who know the context in in Germany, they are telling me that look, there is something wrong with the German communication actually and, and German image in Ukraine because Germany has been doing much more than than we know. And this uh, decision about Leopard tanks was uh, very much dependent on Germany. So we really hope that this Titan vendor, the change of times about which uh, Chancellor Scholz spoke very early in this big war, is, is really something uh, irreversible. That is, the Germany is a kind of a big ship that uh, took so long to change its course, but um, this course is changed for uh, uh, irreversibly for forever. And and uh, of course, I mean, it would be interesting to see how many of the equipment was actually supplied by each particular state, uh, because we we know that some states are very vocal, but uh, do not give too much, and some other states are. Not very vocal, but it appears that there has been giving too much. For example, the case of Bulgaria is very interesting. Maybe maybe we will make some analysis of this with, with the help of Ukrainian military expert, experts because it, it is very, very interesting to see. So what's new in the talks with Scholz and Macron? So, of course, the... Uh, well... The major breakthrough happened uh, a bit earlier about this is about tanks and there have been even several waves of uh, well of announcements that these tanks would be uh, sent to Ukraine first they talked about some portions uh, from a number of European countries and uh, each country was about to send a dozen more or less to Ukraine and now uh, there have been announcements that uh, Germany uh, is going to send a bit also more a bit older tanks but they're going to be in very big quantities and of course they're going to be most of them are going to be a bit late well significantly later maybe towards the end of the year but still we're going to have them and that's like around 100 so that was in the immediate run-up to to this all oh, this diplomatic uh, tour that president Zelensky had and of course the talks that uh, Scholz and uh, Macron had yesterday and are going to uh, prolong them today in the wings of the EU summit. Uh, I think that the major idea here is to institutionalize this strategic uh, cooperation, not the patchy thing, very important, but still, as I said, patchy thing, fragmented uh, support of Ukraine that it was previously. It was big, but it was for specific needs at specific fronts. Uh, to reinforce Ukraine, to make it possible to for Ukraine to make offensives, and now it is doing the same but for the overall but to make sure the overall victory of ukraine with the with regard to the uh, overall quantities that are needed for that etc etc so i like to, th to to see what's going on 
uh, as an institutionalization of uh, of this uh, bigger thing that is eventually going to help us win right and um, uh, the, the 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 next the next point in this tour of zelensky is uh, as we said you summit in brussels we will cover it in our next episode uh we need to see what is going on there we are recording this conversation when it is it is happening but indeed it's 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 indeed very important and very symbolic uh, how president zelensky visited this uh, these capitals let's move on let's talk about the huge tragedy which happened the natural tragedy which happened in turkey and syria this horrible earthquake uh, and the reaction of ukraine to it i was i was following the ukrainian social networks and uh, it, it actually uh, i have seen how how much reaction ukrainians are actually sharing how much condolences they're sharing there were flowers brought to turkish embassy in kiev uh, and there was a reaction of the ukrainian officials um, of minister kuleba and of president zelensky himself who addressed uh, turkish and syrian people in his address and uh, there was a decision to uh, actually readiness of ukraine to supply rescue teams uh what can you say about this maxim well my biggest impression first of all uh is the same one that you have is that notwithstanding the war circumstances uh and the wartime context uh still these developments had a huge impact on the news front on the on the news bubble that ukraine is in and uh, not only we know much about what happened but also it resonated with the sympathies uh, of ukrainians as you said with the ones uh, with, with the government and but also the uh, the facebook bubbles from every of everybody i know and the twitter bubble uh, they have been uh, well, filled with the reactions of ukrainians with condolences and uh, you know th- th- the words of support for the turkish people but what is more even uh, more important even is that um, and what what is important in diplomatic uh, sense is that ukraine uh, even in the dire straits that it finds itself in uh, has found the possibilities to uh, support turkey materially what i mean is to send a group a big group of uh, ukrainian uh, rescuers of Ukrainian emergency relief personnel to Turkey to help, um, to help, uh, well, um, what's the word, to work with the debris of uh, of the uh, buildings that have suffered because the, uh, the scale of the tragedy is huge. Uh, I think this morning it was confirmed that I was stunned at the, at the number, but I think this morning as many as uh, 16,000 people were confirmed deceased. So you can only imagine the scale of what happened. Uh, uh, so against this backdrop, it is very important that after the support that Turkey has uh, has provided to Ukraine during the war, with the Bayraktar uh, UAVs, with uh, the negotiations on the exchange of prisoners, you know, etc. So many things. So it is important that Ukraine reciprocates, even in the dire straits it finds itself itself in, and sends this big group of rescuers and shows sympathies and uh, provides this very tangible things that uh, Turkey, we know, is going to appreciate. This is how things in diplomacy work. So. Right, and let's not forget about Syria. Uh, we have we've seen that, um, according to the data right now that we quote from Al Jazeera, 
The death toll is really has passed 16,000 people and at least 12,873 people have died in Turkey and uh, at least 3,162 people have been killed in Syria. So this is really, really horrible, horrible disaster. And uh, of course, during this disaster, uh, there is there is a place only for humanism, for sympathy, for um, for mutual help, mutual aid. Let's move on, and maybe last topic of our conversation is no, maybe not the, the two last topics. First, we 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 will uh, start with the Chinese balloon over the U.S. Uh, we were discussing China in the in the previous episode, and we were talking that there is a certain willingness in China to. Uh, to reapproach the West to to try to fix the relations with the United States with the European Union, and we actually published on Ukraine World an assessment of a Ukrainian expert on China, uh, Oles Kovar, who was analyzing a week ago analyzing the developments uh, in China and this basically willingness, interest of China with the new appointments to improve the relations with the West. Uh, uh, even despite the the well-known position of China with regard to this war and reluctance to uh, to condemn Russia's invasion clearly. Uh, but it seems that the situation is worsening and uh, the, uh, the, the high-level meetings between China and U.S. officials, as far as I have seen, have been postponed. Can you develop on this? Uh, yes. So I think to summarize what is happening uh, is uh, China is... Well, putting its toe in the water, as they say, uh, if I'm not mistaken with the wording. But um, China is trying to test, I think, well, to, to kill two birds with one stone, essentially, to carry out some uh, re- reconnaissance, so to say, uh, if we can summarize it as that. and But also to, uh, to show its, well, its ambition and to test the reactions. So it's several things at once. Uh, even though Chinese officials have no, not uh, formally admitted anything. But uh, what I think is important for Ukraine in this context is something that we have been discussing in other products, including the, the last episode of this podcast, uh, is that uh, the clock is ticking. There is going to be developments, most probably, that are going to divert not only the US, but also the entire world's uh, attention uh, from Ukraine more actively. And I'm not going as far as to say that there is going to be an all-out war between China and the US, because that's a very too far-fetched thing to, thing to talk about right now. But what I'm saying is that the US may uh, may need to focus on other things too incrementally in the near future, which is why uh, it is important for developments in Ukraine to be, the, the, well, to, let's call things by their names, the uh, aggression of the Russian Federation against Ukraine to be put an end to as quickly as possible, uh, because that's uh, for everybody's uh, interest to do that before, you know, and if anything, any other crisis happens elsewhere in the world. Right, and in this context, it was very uh, interesting to watch the President Biden's State of the Union address. And uh, on the positive side, we can say that uh, he talked about Ukraine uh, uh, in a in a very, uh, I mean, in it he in very in in much in much detail. 
and uh, he mentioned you know, the U- U.S. support, um, and um, in the Congress, the, the people were uh, applauding when he was he was mentioning Ukraine. So, so there was a big round of applause and uh, uh, ovation. And the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, uh, uh, Markarova, was present there. So, and Biden mentioned her. So it's obvious that the support is there, but at the same time, it was not the first thing that Biden was talking about. So the the Ukraine was in the second half of the speech, and um, I don't know if if it means that uh, the priorities are moving a little bit, or or it's just the order of uh, of questions that he raised. Yeah, so of course it's the the United States support is critical for Ukraine. We understand that. And the last probably topic, uh, the last topic of this conversation is the, is the Olympics. So there is a discussion whether Russian and Belarusian sportsmen will be allowed to participate in the next Olympics games. And uh, Ukraine is of course very much against it, even if Russian and Belarusian sportsmen appear under the white flag, the neutral flag. So what is going on there? So yes, basically you summarize the, the discussion because uh, even the consideration of the fact that uh, that uh, Russian and Belarusian sportsmen are going to uh, participate in the Olympics, it uh, enrages Ukraine, I would say. Uh, I think uh, President Zelensky himself stated a day or two ago that Russia has destroyed as much uh, as as many as 340 something uh, sports facilities in, in Ukraine and has killed a couple hundred uh, sportsmen that as well could have maybe participated in the Olympics and it is just from the very humane point of view it's very odd that uh, the International Olympic Committee is going to admit Russian nationals and Belarusian uh, nationals uh, basically the representatives of killers, I'm sorry I have to, to be this blunt, uh, to participate instead. And this is, I, I understand that there are talks about the white flag and everything, but, uh, you know, about the practice, how these issues would have been solved in the past. But also what I, as Ukrainian, as a Ukrainian see, is the uh, disproportion in the justice about this issue. Because there is that there are people who still are going to, one way or another, be seen as representatives of their countries. Uh, maybe not formally, but they are Russians and Belarusians, right? They're going to be there. They're going to compete as everybody else. And this is, there is a feeling of uh, them uh, escaping unpunished in this in this context. And this does not feel right, I would say. Yeah, I absolutely agree that these international sports organizations sometimes behave in a in a very bizarre way. But let's follow follow this story. Uh, it was a podcast explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of Ukraine World, and uh, my guest, my interlocutor, was Maxim Panchenko, expert and journalist at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine. Thank you for listening. Don't don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. You can also support our volunteer humanitarian trips at PayPal, Ukraine.resisting gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.